0: Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight, episode 25. Today I'm speaking with award-winning author, journalist, and attorney Milton C. Toby. Milton has more than 40 years of experience researching and writing about Thoroughbred Racing and Equine Law. He is the author of eight books, including Taking Shergar, Thoroughbred Racing's Most Famous Cold Case, Dancer's Image, The Forgotten Story of the 1968 Kentucky Derby. And Noor, a champion thoroughbred's unlikely journey from California to Kentucky. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm so excited to have fellow author and horse lover, Milton Toby on the show. Hi, Milton.
1: Hi, Carly. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it.
0: I am too. So, th- so this is a little different than the last time you saw me. Uh, when, when we, the last time we saw each other was at the Equus Film Festival, and I had lost my voice. Uh, so this is very different.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm glad you've recovered finally.
0: <laughs> that was. It's pretty difficult to try and help people out and uh, you know be social when you when you can't speak. So no kidding. So this, so this is an opportunity for me to redeem myself with you. <laughs> Good. Oh, and, and Milt was so kind as to fill in on the author panels and be a moderator for me in my place because I couldn't talk, and you did an excellent job. So thank you for that too.
1: Thanks. So that was fun.
0: It was. You were great at it. I mean, you have a journalistic background, so it's uh, it, it <laughs> certainly helps. So and which we'll talk about as we get into the interview here. But you know, I always <clears> like <throat> to start these interviews off because this is the equestrian author spotlight, uh, talking about how the authors I'm speaking with got involved with horses. So how did your love affair with horses begin?
1: I have been involved with horses in one fashion or another for as long as I can remember. I grew up in central Kentucky with saddlebreds. I showed horses through high school and while I was in college and then I began riding after I graduated from the University of Kentucky with a BS in agriculture. And my first published article was in 1972 about the Belmont Stakes for a, a small newspaper in Aiken, South Carolina. And I, I haven't been writing very much since then, but I've been writing about horses, primarily thoroughbred racing and legal issues involving the horse business uh, ever since. So it, it's, it's a, it literally is a lifelong love for me
0: yeah and that's so interesting, so many authors and i I'm the same way that I've been talking with on this show, you know it like literally starts the moment we come out of the womb, this love of both riding and horses, and it sounds like that is the the same story with you
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: yeah, and then uh saddlebreds why why saddlebreds? is that like your family's uh breed of choice, or
1: yeah, my family had saddlebreds that uh, that we showed. You know, locally and you know at some national shows as well. But so that was my start.
0: That is awesome. You know, and that's another interesting thing too. Like, it tends to be the case that you tend to get into the breed that either your first trainer is a part of, or your or your family is a part of. Would you Would you say yeah. that that seems? To-
1: yeah, exactly. That was the only uh, horse interest in my family were the show horses.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's great. We need more men showing horses. So you, you probably, uh, you know, you were like one of a, of a few, so you could pick up the ladies. I always say they should put the, put the young man go show horses because that's where all the women are. That's right. <laughs> that's awesome. So, and I, as I was galloping around your website, gathering information for our uh, interview questions, I, I found this really interesting too. Your wife is an equine veterinarian and also an author uh, and an editor. In her own right. So does it help you with with your writing to have a veterinarian and a fellow author to bounce ideas off and actually fact fact check the medical information that you may be writing about in your books?
1: Yeah, it it really does. And it was something that I hadn't given a whole lot of thought to until I saw that in, in one of your, your questions. But yeah, you know, Roberta has been writing, uh, doing freelance writing for a very long time. And she also was an editor for the the Lloyd's Equine Disease Quarterly that the University of Kentucky Department of Event Science put out. She, she did that for more than two decades. So she's a very, very good editor. And she catches stuff that I miss all the time. Yeah, it, I, my, my writing is better because she takes a look at it
0: yeah my husband does a little bit of the same for me. He's like my first editor. He goes through my my uh, my chapters every weekend after I'm done writing and, and and catches things that you know you stop seeing after a while and then so does she edit your books or do you pass them through her first and then work with, another editor on the other side?
1: Uh, she sort of is involved as we go along. Yeah, I, I show her a chapter, I show her a, a paragraph and, and we discuss that. But as far as the final editing goes, it depends on the publisher. Uh, my last book was published by the University Press of Kentucky and I worked with a very good uh, copy editor that does contract work for them. She was a joy to work with and like with roberta the book was better because of things she thought of and things she caught
0: i totally agree i mean editors 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 always work with an editor they definitely make your work better i wouldn't you know my my stories wouldn't be as strong as they are if i hadn't had good editors along the way and then What's interesting is you mentioned, and some, some people don't know this, you mentioned editing and then um, copy editing. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the two, just, just for those that are listening and that may be aspiring to be an author and might not know this terminology yet?
1: Sure. You know, for, for me, at least, a copy editor is someone who goes through the manuscript with a fine-tooth comb. They pick up grammar. They pick up a punctuation. They pick up misspellings. They pick up... Uh, The mechanics of of what the writing is. A a development editor, on the other hand, is somebody who who doesn't look so much at the mechanics. They look at the story. They look at at where it's going. Is it getting where you want it to be? And the advantage there is you have someone who doesn't know the story as they're reading it the first time. So they can know better where it makes sense and where it doesn't. I, I was lucky. My copy editor also was very good at saying, you know, this chapter might go somewhere else.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it was very helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes a, a world of difference because they're reading it with clear eyes after we've touched it a bazillion times and, and they can tell you from a different point of view if something doesn't make sense and, or something needs to be expanded upon to make it make sense, right?
1: Exactly, and for somebody who is an aspiring author, yeah, and like, as you say, I can't recommend more that you need to have professional editing. Mm-hmm. no matter how many of your friends and how many of your family say this is wonderful it probably isn't <laughs> and you need somebody who is impartial who can say well, hey this needs some work here mhm
0: yeah because you know it's the it's whether you independently publish or traditional publish, it, it is a responsibility to put the b- very best product you have out into the world when you're taking on this writing endeavor, and editors do help you do that, and it's very important. So we can't stress that enough, right?
1: <laughs> no, ab- absolutely, and particularly for people who self-publish.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. Very much so. Yes. So, uh, you know, I always say with independent publishing comes a lot of power, but also a lot of responsibility and you and you have all the responsibilities of the traditional publisher to make sure that you are releasing the best, very best product uh, when you put your book into the world and you give birth to these book babies.
1: Yeah, Uh, absolutely.
0: Yes, yeah, so and that that's just fascinating. Thank you for the insight on on that. And and we do go into the interview in a little bit uh, in a little while more about writing and marketing and the process of of how you work. But I was wondering, I always ask this question too. Do you have any uh, stories that listeners would find interesting about either your writing or your horse background? Is there like one moment that sticks out in your mind that is just kind of interesting or, or funny?
1: something that had never occurred to me as being a problem for i did a a three book series for the history press in Mm. south carolina a book about dancer's image who was disqualified in the 68 derby a book about noor and a book about canyon arrow the second and one of the uh, volumes that i was doing for them the copy editor came back with wanting to refer to horses as it
0: Ah, interesting and
1: And technically, he's right. He -hmm. was right about that. He he was going by the Chicago Manual of Style, which if you don't have one on your desk and you're a writer, you need to get one. (laughs) But I, I explained to him that he was technically right, but people who read the book and are horse people are going to be offended if you refer to a horse as it. And we went back and forth for quite a while. And finally, he saw the light and and we were able to change that in the book and surprisingly that wasn't an issue for the other two history book press history press books that I did but it was for this particular one and he he was very adamant about that but finally he agreed that yeah we will offend horse people who see uh horse referred to as it so that
0: that is very interesting i you know i've never really thought about that because you you are writing from the perspective of a horse person and to us they are he, she, her, him. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then, but, but your editor who is going by the rule books of the English language is saying it. So, um, and you eventually won that, that battle because it does make sense for your reader, right? This was a decision for your reader.
1: Exactly. But it it raises an interesting question about who your audience really is. Mm. Because if you are reading a book about horses and you're a horse person, yeah, this all makes sense, but if you're trying to move outside of a horse-related readership, which I, I always like to try, think that I'm doing, then you have to figure out how much explanation you have to provide for the person who doesn't know horses, and it, it can get really complicated.
0: That is a very interesting question, <clears throat> but, th- but then I, I would I would think for people outside of the the horse realm or that aren't close to horses and don't have them would would maybe like associate a horse as like similar to like a dog and i think people people think dogs are he and she right would Mm -hmm. you would you say they'd be able to make that connection
1: yeah i would think so we we talk very personally to our dogs and the cat but I was thinking on a, a broader scale, think of Seabiscuit for a second. It was wildly popular with people who knew the Seabiscuit story and, and who were horse related. But it was also wildly popular with people who liked the the explanations of the era and what was happening there, not so much related to the horses. So if you're trying to reach a crossover audience, you need to make sure you're understanding enough of what they don't understand to include that in the book too, rather than writing strictly for someone who knows everything there is about horses.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and and you know, it, and that's a great piece of advice for for authors, right? Do you want to pigeonhole yourself just for the equestrian community, or do you want to put enough uh, information in there to help it be have broader reach, right? So exactly. I, think, I think that's what we're getting exactly. down to. Exactly. And for for further books that you're writing, what do you think you're going to do? Are you going to go the it route or are you going to go with the the gender term for for the horse no
1: i'm going to go with what the horse people expect to to see the everything that i've written a horse enthusiast or for me a racing enthusiast is that's my primary audience Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: so that's who i'm going to cater to first but i also want there to be enough in the book that isn't specifically about a horse or specifically about a horse related topic that will I hope appeal to somebody who doesn't know the story, doesn't know anything necessarily about racing.
0: Absolutely. And well, and I think that your writing speaks to history buffs too, you know, people interested in the history at the time that these things were going on, much like what was going on with Seabiscuit, right?
1: Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm. Very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. So this is really interesting too. I want to talk a little bit about your background. You, you are an attorney and uh and an author who has been writing about thoroughbred racing for more than 40 years um how how have you married being in law um with the horse business is is it like some it, you know what what type of or or even the writing business you know like how how did you make the decision or, or how do they kind of work together
1: that is an, a difficult question because the Practice of law was career number five or six for me, depending on how you count. It it was something that I came to in my 40s. Oh,
0: wow.
1: Long after I had been writing, I I worked for the newspaper in South Carolina for a year. I worked for the Bloodhorse magazine for 12 years. I lived overseas and did freelance news photography for six years. Uh, Came back and went to law school in the early 90s. But through all of this, I continued writing. While I was traveling, I I did uh, pieces for the Blood Horse about racing in the Philippines, racing in Hong Kong, racing in China, racing in uh, Costa Rica, racing in Colombia, racing in Puerto Rico. So I, I kept my hand in, but I was mostly doing photography during that traveling. But then... Once I began practicing law, I thought, well, okay, I'll practice equine law because I live in central Kentucky and that's what you do. Well, if you live in central Kentucky, almost everybody practices equine law <laughs> and there's a lot of competition. So I actually spent most of my active legal practice representing inmates on death row in Kentucky. That was about 15 years of my legal practice.
0: Wow. Uh- <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I'm like I'm like, whoa. So, yeah. so you have a massive journalistic background, um, yeah. traveled to all these fantastic places and then you reinvented yourself as as a lawyer or an attorney and then you kind of lo- thought about the equine industry but then you shifted because of the you reinvented yourself and you shifted it and you represented Death Row inmates. I, I can't even man- what was that? I can't even imagine what that experience was like for you.
1: It it was a very sobering experience. I had four clients on Death Row. over the course of almost 15 years, and it was very difficult, but it also was very rewarding.
0: I, I can only imagine, and, and did you sort of fall into representing uh, that type of, of person, or, or is that, was that a choice?
1: Well, it was a little of both. When I was looking for things to do, I, I set up a practice with a, a friend of mine from law school. We set up a two-person practice, and there were, there's a public defender's office in Kentucky like there is everywhere else, and they had conflicts of interest. From time to time, mm-hmm. and I inherited a couple of clients that way because they had conflicts. And then the more of it I did, I got recommendations actually from other inmates on death row. So, wow. so that's that was how that developed. But I was I continued to be interested in horses, first of all, but also in the legal aspects of writing because I was still writing, and you know, copyright issues, publishing contracts, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that has led to kind of a. Another reinvention of myself into someone who uh, wants to give back to a profession that's been very, very good to me
0: that is amazing so so as you're pursuing law, you continued to write and and support your you know do writing freelance writing and then and then did were you writing books prior to becoming uh, an attorney, or, or was that something that happened while being an attorney?
1: Um, it, I had a, a book actually that was published, a series of interviews I did with a very famous veterinarian in central Kentucky while I was with the Blood Horse. But then I, I didn't really get back into the book writing until I was also practicing law. I did a couple of books about business and equine law for Eclipse Press, which was the publishing aspect of the, mm-hmm. the Blood Horse for a while.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I also did a biography of Ruffian for them. And I did a handbook on equine law that that was published by Eclipse Press that it's 10 years out of date now, but it's still used in college equine courses. So that really was the the only real marriage between equine work and writing and, and the law. And then I shifted to the history press and then the last book and the one I'm working on now are for the UK press in Kentucky. So you know, it wow. just sort of goes on and on and on.
0: <laughs> and I mean, what what an, what an adventure you've been on in this reinvention of yourself, but always continuing close to the heart, keeping it with the writing yeah. and the horses. Uh, and I can only imagine uh, your, your schooling and then your experience as a lawyer made you, uh, which we're going to get into here, a better presenter, a better writer, um, better with people. I can only imagine that only... Um, I mean, you're already amazing with people from your journalism experience, but I'm sure it only just made everything that you're putting out there in the world better.
1: That- yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It, it all sort of works together toward a goal, which is mm-hmm. communicating.
0: Yeah, that's that's really incredible. So let me ask you this. Why in particular... Thoroughbred racing. Why why was that what you were drawn to to write about? You you have a lot of books about thoroughbred racing, which we're gonna talk about your books here in a second, and, and you work for the Blood Horse and you did a lot of freelance writing around thoroughbred racing, but but you grew up with breads. So tell us a little bit about why thoroughbred racing. Uh,
1: one of the things that, that I have always told people is that any everything that I've done is nothing that I've ever planned to do. <laughs> and getting it, and getting involved writing about thoroughbred racing was one of those things. When I graduated, I was looking for work, and I wrote to a dozen newspapers and said, uh, "I've got a B.S. in agriculture. I have a horse background. I know nothing about journalism. Would you like to hire me?" And. <laughs> And uh, 12 of the 13 newspapers, of course, ignored me, but this little newspaper in Aiken, South Carolina, which is a winter thoroughbred training center, uh-huh. wrote back and said, you know, it'd be easier to teach you how to write than it would be to teach a journalist about horses. That so I, true. they hired me. I spent a year there. And as I said, the very first thing I wrote that was ever published was an article about the 1972 Belmont Stakes. And from there, I came to the Blood Horse, which is, of course, a thoroughbred magazine and so you get kind of entrenched in that particular sport and that's where your contacts are that's what you know so you stay with it
0: yeah, and i i love hearing stories like that because it's almost like it's almost like you're following you know whatever's calling you forward and just saying yes and stepping into that role and then like look at what it's what it's look at what it's become you know you could have said i don't know anything about thoroughbred racing i'm not going to south carolina and taking this job and instead you accepted it and you said um, I'm going to step into this and look at what it's generated for you. That's really Yeah. Fantastic. And,
1: and it, it's, it's been a great trip.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, been an amazing ride and journey and, and look at how you've, you've invented yourself over and over again, which leads me to, I, you know, I know you're working on a project right now, but, but you mentioned to me that it's going to, you know, be out there for a little, for, you know, it's going to be a minute before that one comes out. So tell us about your most recent book. Um, and and then and then let's get a little into your backlist, maybe talk about, you've already mentioned some of the things that you've, sure. you've written about, but but tell us a little bit more about your books. And-
1: well, the, the, the current book, and this was an award winner at the Equus Film and Arts Festival, which I was really excited about. Congratulations, but, well, but the, well the, deserved. <laughs> thank you. But the book is called Taking Shergar, Thoroughbred Racing's Most Famous Cold Case. And when I was working at the Blood Horse in 1983, The big news item from Europe was the theft of a stallion named Shergar. He had won the Epsom Derby. He was one of the most famous horses in the world. He probably was second or third most valuable horse, certainly valuable thoroughbred in the world in the early 80s. And he was stolen on the eve of the 1983 breeding season. He was held for ransom. And the ransom was never paid. The horse was never recovered. So we... There have never been any arrests. There have never been any charges. There have never been any convictions. So that's why I'm calling it a cold case. The, the file is still open officially with the Irish police, which meant that they wouldn't give me the file to take a look at. So I had to do research around that problem. But it, there's no doubt in my mind and in the minds of a lot of people that it was the Irish Republican Army who stole the horse. They needed money because they were running out of funds to buy weapons and explosives. This was in the midst of the Troubles when they were trying to drive the the British out of Northern Ireland. So that that has to be the reason.
0: Wow, That and that must have been fascinating to research and, and learn more about. And it, it, so the horse was stolen and never recovered, and I'm sure you cover this in the book, but then how did they make money from the Horse or
1: that they didn't. It, it was an absolute failure for the Irish Republican Army. Okay, they didn't get any money and they got an incredibly bad publicity. Mm. The, the thinking apparently was they were kidnapping people, they were kidnapping uh, grocery executives and mm. holding them for ransom, and that wasn't going well. And they decided apparently that if you kidnap a horse, uh, it, people won't get mad about it. Well, they didn't. They underestimated how much the Irish love their horses. Oh yeah. And there, there was more bad publicity about Shergar being stolen than there was about any of the uh, executives who were kidnapped.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And 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 that I think is why the Irish Republican Army has never officially claimed responsibility for taking the horse.
0: Because they don't want the 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 bad press. That yeah. sounds fascinating. So when how do you? choose the the topics that you decide that you want to write about and then and and do you, you stumble upon these things and then decide you want to dive deeper and use all that journalistic background that you have to, to get the get the facts it's, it's a
1: little it's a little of both I, I was interested in shergar from the time he was stolen because i was working at the blood horse and keeping track of that in the early 80s but in general i, I look to for a story that people think they know but in fact they don't mm. And Shergar was one of those. Everybody that I know of who knows anything about racing, if you mention Shergar, they either don't know anything about it or they say, oh, yeah, he was stolen by somebody, and that's all they know. So the book was very little of the book is actually written about the theft because there was a lot of coverage of that in the press at the time. The book is really about what happened politically in Ireland that led to the theft and then what happened afterward. There were a lot of legal issues. This is getting back to my training as an attorney. There were a lot of legal issues that came up, particularly involving insurance.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, The horse was owned by a syndicate of 35 people, and most everyone had mortality insurance. And they also generally had theft insurance. Mm. If you had theft insurance, Lloyd's of London was the primary insurer. Uh, If you had theft insurance, you got paid because the horse clearly had been stolen mm-hmm. but if you had mortality insurance only you didn't get paid because there was no proof he was dead
0: oh my goodness what they, a mess they still
1: <laughs> you know, they ha- they still haven't found the remains so what, a, a very prominent veterinarian in Ireland who basically mortgaged a lot of his property to buy a share in Shergar didn't have theft insurance oh. and he he died early or in 2019 uh, still fighting the insurance companies.
0: Oh my goodness. And what a disservice to the racing industry, right? Yeah. To have stolen this horse I, it, and, and his genetics are just gone. Right? And this, mm-hmm. this could have changed, his his bloodlines could have changed the face of racing. So it was not only a disservice to all these people that were in the syndicate and then the the public who are loving this horse, but then also, you know, the future of racing was impacted by this. So
1: yeah, he, he had one, he sired one crop he, his first year in stud was nineteen eighty two he had i think he covered forty four mares and had thirty six registered foals and uh, a couple of them were very good one horse won the Irish saint ledger, which is a group run r- one race in europe and you know there's no telling what his offspring could have been
0: right wow that that is fascinating um Thank you for sharing that. And of course, I'll link to, to all of um, Milton's books in the show notes. So you can go check out his book and, uh, and get a copy because this is fascinating. And then, you know, I did mention a little bit about your backlist. Will you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about some of the other um, books that you've written? Yeah, I know you've written a, a, a lot. So maybe highlight your favorites or? or... Sure.
1: Well, the, my favorite book is the one I'm working on mm. at, at the time because it, it, it occupies so much of your life for a period of time. With the book about Shergar, uh, that was a three-year project. Mm. Actually, probably a little longer than that, because my wife and I made two trips to Ireland and England. We did a lot of research here in the States, did a lot by phone. So that was that was my favorite at the time. My favorite when I was working on the book about Dancer's Image, that was my favorite book at the time. So that's the way it works. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't... I don't have the mind that allows me to work on a lot of different projects at once. I I, I don't multitask well at all, which, which may be an age thing. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I don't shift gears very quickly. So that's, that's my favorite book. The, 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 the three books I did for the history press, each one was a different book to do. You know, the, the topics were different. The horses were different. You know, Dancer's Image was, the only until 2019 the only kentucky derby winner to be disqualified Mm. and it was a drug test that there were a lot of questions about the validity of the test there were questions about the competence of the the state chemist and that case went on for there were five years of legal wranglings after he was disqualified which I found fascinating, again, because I'm an attorney. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to probably present a perspective that no one else had done about Dancer's Image. Because, again, a a portion of the book was about the horse and how he got to the derby and the fact that he won and then was disqualified. But two-thirds of the book is about the legal issues that came up afterwards. So that was fun at the time. The, The book before that, also for the history press, was about a horse named Noor. Noor was an Irish bred, he was a champion in California in 1950, he beat Citation four times Mm. at the time, and then he stood for stud at a farm in Northern California, wasn't particularly successful, and when he died, he was buried in an unmarked grave in the middle of the training track at the farm.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: He was a champion in the US, but that was the end of people knowing anything about Noor for decades. Until a few years ago, uh, part of the farm was sold to make a business center. Mm -hmm. And there was a wonderful woman in Northern California named Charlotte Farmer. She is the most excited racing fan that I know. And she was convinced that this would be a sin to pave over Noor's grave. Mm. So she began a one-woman campaign to find Noor, find the grave, find somebody else who would take him to be reburied and then to actually get people to help. She, she got volunteer archaeologists. She got a volunteer uh, technician with ground penetrating radar. She got a, you know, a volunteer person with a backhoe and they began making the rounds in the infield of this track. And the last day they had access to the property, they found a grave. They didn't have time to do a real archeological dig. So they loaded two tons, about two tons of dirt with the backhoe into a custom made box on the back of a flatbed truck and drove it to Kentucky. Wow. They had looked for places who would take Neuer's remains. The racetracks in California weren't interested. The museum of racing in New York wasn't interested. They called Michael Blowen, who if you know, Old Friends in, in Georgetown, Kentucky, about a, a mile and a half from where I live. It's a retirement farm for thoroughbred stallions. She called Michael and Michael said, yeah, sure, bring him on. And he told me that he was convinced that she wouldn't be able to do it. So he, saw, he thought saying okay was all right. He didn't <laughs> think it was going to matter. And then Charlotte shows up with this box of dirt that has a few of Noor's bones in it. Wow. So he's he's buried at Old Friends. So this book, you know, the first part was about Noor as a racehorse. The second part was about Charlotte's campaign to gr- do justice to Noor.
0: Yes. That's the sort of thing. It's so cool. What an amazing story to tell and do it, do justice to this this horse. So so they mar- they buried him in an unmarked grave because he didn't produce as a as a stud, is is that right?
1: Uh, probably. But also they're you know, burying horses wasn't quite the big deal then that it might be now. Mm. And, you know, he, he wasn't a successful stallion, and, he, and then he died. And what do you do with a dead horse? You right. know, they, they buried him in the infield.
0: Yeah. Huh. That, that That is, well, thank you for telling a story <laughs> and doing justice to that. That is incredible. And then you did tease us about your current, I mean, there's more in your backlist, but you did tease us mm-hmm. a little bit about what you're currently working on. Can you give us a little sneak peek of, of what your, what your current Uh, project love is?
1: Sure. It, it it basically is a, a comprehensive history of performance enhancing drugs in racing.
0: Oh, perfect timing for something like that.
1: So, and and that again is requiring a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I I accepted this, my idea was that the book about Shergar would be my last book. I mean, I, I turned 70 last year. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a lot of work and I had a lot of other projects going on, mm-hmm. but th- this was too enticing to to not do. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, you know, as, as I say, I've done a, a lot of research about it. Uh, I The most recent article that the Blood Horse ran, it was a long form piece, almost 8,000 words, about a guy named Harry Anslinger. Who was the head of the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the 1930s? He decided to clean up racing mm. So he had people on his agents on the backstretch for over a year uh, Gathering information and he he wound up raiding Arlington Park in 1933 He indicted 200 people including some big names in racing and Then he he just sort of lost interest huh but it was the first attempt for the feds federal government to get involved in horse racing as a regulatory agent which is still an issue now Mm -hmm. you know the horse racing integrity act is is in congress right now Mm -hmm. that would have federal oversight about drug testing Mm -hmm. so it it applies to what's happening now which is one of the interesting things i also did a story another long-form piece for the blood horse uh, we were talking about Seabiscuit. Uh, Seabiscuit's mm-hmm. trainer was a, a guy named Tom Smith. And after Seabiscuit retired, he continued training and was very, very successful. But he was involved in the very first major trainer drug case that ever hit the courts in the mid-1940s. So I did a long-form piece about that called Silent Tom's Atomizer. <laughs> the atomizer was what he was using to in, in, to use uh, ephedrine in yeah. the nostrils of his horses he wasn't trying to dope them i don't think he used ephedrine himself because he had nasal problems he thought mm-hmm. it would do the same thing for the horse
0: like help them breathe better yeah, yeah
1: exactly mm-hmm. he didn't i don't think there was any intent to use it as a performance enhancing drug but it was prohibited at the time
0: mm-hmm. and
1: after a lot of legal uh, cases uh, tom smith lost Mm-hmm. And the article again—it was another very long thing. They—they they run those on their on the internet site. They—they're too long to be in the print magazine. Mm-hmm. But uh, that also won an award at the Equus Film Festival this year as the best magazine article, "Silent Tom's Atomizer." So I've done a lot of research already for drugs and racing. So that was the appeal of, of updating all that and putting it together.
0: Well, it's a timely project, and and that's yeah. that's fantastic. And it sounds fascinating just to get dive into this sort of stuff and 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 what you're talking about too it's it's a testament to the fact that history repeats itself right like
1: yeah yeah well, one of the the things that harry anslinger did a couple of years later he invited veterinarians or representatives from all the racing commissions to come to his office mm. and the the result of that meeting was a, a a press release that said everybody agrees that there needs to be a centralized governing body for horse racing. Mm this was in 1935. We are now 65, 75, almost 85 years later, people are still saying we need a centralized governing body in horse racing. So yeah. you're right, history repeats itself over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And and that's my interest in, in history. If you don't know where we came from, you don't know how to go somewhere. That's, it's really important.
0: That's right. Yeah. And, and thank you for the contribution you're making to, to to helping us take a look at not repeating history. You know, it's like, we, we should know better exactly. by now. <laughs> yeah, you would think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a quick question to you. Do you have a couple of copies of your books there for the people who are watching us on YouTube where, so they can see your beautiful sure. covers? The covers sure. of your books are so gorgeous.
1: Yeah, this is taking sure of and, and I love the cover. The The picture of the horse is him galloping uh, prior to the 1981 Epsom Derby. It is that a, he a won. Cover. He he won by ten links. It's the largest winning margin ever before and ever since in the Epsom Derby. Do
0: These, you have a, Do you have a say on your book cover? Did you have a say on that book cover, or did the the publisher do that for you?
1: It was a little of both. I I I got the photographs. From a, a freelance photographers in in Europe and gave them to the press and told them, you know these are the dozen photographs that I like, but they they picked the one they wanted it wasn 't the one I would have chosen hmm. but it 's a better choice than I would have made, hmm. which is why I, I like professional help when you 're doing a book mm-hmm. and and they picked this one as, as the cover they did all the design. Yeah, I, I had no input at all other than to say, hey, that looks really good, let's do that.
0: <laughs> well, that's great, but but you did provide the pictures. So I, I provided
1: the yeah. I provided the photographs, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's something else to keep in mind. If Even if you're working with a traditional publisher, the way publishing works these days, you're going to be doing a lot of the groundwork, a lot of the legwork. You're going to be gathering the photographs. You're going to be gathering permissions to use the photographs. You know, if you maybe a decade or two ago, the publisher might have taken care of that for you, but it doesn't work that way anymore unless you happen to be Stephen King or (laughs) one of the really big name guys. So you need to be prepared for a lot of legwork that doesn't involve sitting in front of the computer writing.
0: I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because I think for, for some newbies (laughs) uh, the idea is, is that you write the book, hand it over to a publisher and they handle all the marketing and all the, uh, everything, right, but but so much more nowadays is falling onto the author to handle a lot of that stuff, like you know, build a following, get readers, promote yourself, um, like you said, getting the, the rights to utilize photos for your covers, so, so I'm really glad you mentioned that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, the promotion is probably at least as important as the book that you write, mm-hmm. and I'm not good at that, I hate networking, I would rather get poked in the eye with a sharp stick than network. <laughs> I'm I'm not on social media very much. I I follow it, but I don't participate in it very much. So I'm sort of a dinosaur when it comes to the way you need to promote a book these days. And luckily with the history press and also with the University of Kentucky Press, they have publicity people who will work with you. A lot of times they won't know particularly who they need to contact because they don't have the contacts in the industry that I do. Mm -hmm. But if I gave them a list of you need to contact A, B, C, D, E and F because they do radio programs or they, they write, or they do something that promotes racing, then yeah, the, the publisher would then get in touch with them and say, hey, do you want to set up an interview? Do you want to set up a, a book signing, whatever? Mm-hmm. And for me, that has worked, but it's worked partly because I know the industry after been doing this for 40 years. So I have contacts that no publisher's gonna have.
0: Right, well, and that's, that's the truth. You know your demographic and the reader's better than a publisher ever will. Uh, exactly
1: so if you've got somebody who's willing to do the work after you give them the contacts Mm -hmm. then you're way ahead of the game but they're not going to hunt contacts down for you just out of the blue it isn't going to happen
0: well and that's a great thing to share because you know there's a a responsibility that does fall to the authors to yeah
1: absolutely to get
0: the word out about their books no matter which route you choose to publish so that that's really fascinating and then Back to your books, I wanted to ask you about Dancer's Image. You mentioned this book. Um, this is really cool. So, Dancer's Image, the Forgotten Story of the 1968 Kentucky Derby, was the winner of the $10,000 first prize in the Tony Ryan Book Awards, honoring the year's best book about thoroughbred racing. Um, and, Amer- and it also won an American Horse Publications Award, which we are both members of yeah. as Best Equine Book of the Year. Congratulations, first of all. That's amazing. And then, you know, you. how did earning such prestigious literary words make you feel? And like, you know, how'd you decide to enter your book and and like go for these things?
1: For me, and, and I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, and this probably is a shortcoming, but validation in the form of an award of some kind is really important. Mm. Mm -hmm. I find it really difficult to look at something that I have written and say, this is really good. Mm. I, I think it's very hard. And if the book wins an award, or if the magazine article wins an award, you know, like, like taking Shergar and this, the Tom Smith article at, at the Equus Film Festival, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It It isn't something that I require to have happen, but it's really nice when it does.
0: For sure.
1: So for, for me, it, it's, it's an added benefit of doing something that I, I love doing. And if I didn't know that people were going to read what I wrote, I wouldn't write. I know a lot of people write because they have a, a drive to do that. I don't, I, I write because I wanna communicate and an award means that I have communicated with somebody.
0: Yeah, and that, well, I mean, that's a journalist in you too, like wanting yeah. people to read what you've written and you, mm-hmm. do, you do deep work and you really go into the into the topics and you tell the history and you, you really get in there. Uh, so $10,000, what did you do with that? Did you go on a fun trip? Did you reinvest in your business and writing books? Like, Did, did you do anything cool with that, that prize money?
1: If I did anything cool, I don't remember it. <laughs> what, what, what I remember doing primarily is, is paying the bills that went into writing the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because that's the other thing with the book. You work for one year, two years, three years, and you're not making any money. You're running up bills, and that's another nice thing about having a lot of sales. But it's also nice about winning an award that comes with some money. Most awards don't. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I've won that actually gets you some money. So yeah, we I probably broke even.
0: Yeah, that, that's true. There's a lot of upfront costs when it comes yeah. to, to working on a book and writing a book. And then, you know, obviously for what you do, you mentioned, you know, with your last book, you you had traveled to Ireland mm-hmm. a couple of times to do your research. So um, there's there there's expenses that go into these things. Yeah. And did, did your publisher provide you with an advance or 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 to put towards this the research and stuff or, or did they not? No,
1: they, they don't. The History Press didn't. The Eclipse Press didn't. The University Press of Kentucky doesn't. It's the... It's the sort of level of publishing that you're involved in, and when if you're doing horse books, they're you're kind of at at not the bottom, but you're in sort of a middle tier, where you get support from a publisher. That the you know, the sugar book looks great; it looks mm-hmm. better than I could have ever done if I'd done it myself. But you aren't going to get an advance. Mm. Th- that's the downside. The upside is if you don't get an advance, you start earning royalties with the first book sale.
0: Exactly, yeah. Can you explain a little bit, maybe for uh, new, new authors that are listening to the show, how those advances actually work, being that you are an attorney and you understand these things? Because people think it's just free money, but you actually have to pay that back. Is that right? Yeah.
1: You, well, you don't have to pay it back. Let's say that uh, I get a $10,000 advance for a book. Mm -hmm. that's $10,000 advanced against the royalties that the book will earn. So what that means is that the publisher is saying, I think that your book will make at least $10,000 in royalties. So we're going to give you that $10,000 now, but you won't get any more royalties until that you've, it's called earning out until your book earns out the advance. So until my royalties would equal $10,000, I'm not going to get any more royalties. You typically don't have to pay it back, but you aren't going to get royalties unless the book earns enough for you to have equaled the, the advance that you got in royalties. And when you're talking about royalties, you're not talking about very much money. You know, <laughs> you know the, the going rate now for a hardcover book is about 12% mm-hmm. and it's, it's 10 to 12% of net which is basically wholesale, which for a $30 book, um, net wholesale is probably $16, 17 $18. You know, 10% of that, 12%, you're looking at a couple of dollars a book. Mm-hmm. So if you get a $10,000 advance, it's going to take a while Yeah. To, for the book to earn that out. Mhm. It's something that that a lot of a lot of new authors don't realize.
0: That that's right. Yes, thank you for explaining that. And then I guess I didn't I didn't know that if the book doesn't meet the 10,000 or 6,000 or whatever they give you, I didn't know that generally you don't have to to repay it, but that means you don't make any any additional money from from the sales of the book. So the book's a complete flop, you don't hit that $6,000 marker, you may not have to pay back the money, but you don't get any money. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you that, know,
1: that, And depending on your contract, there might be a situation where you have to pay it back. Say that you get an advance and you just never turn in a manuscript. Mm -hmm. The publisher might want you to repay that. But once the book is published and is starting to go on the market, the, the advance is yours.
0: Got it. Well, and the idea though, is you write these books and and you want them to be a, you know, making money in a stream of revenue, albeit a small stream of revenue for, you know, as long as you live for the life of the book and even maybe beyond. Right. So, so Mm -hmm. you want the books to sell and and that marker, Uh, you know, I feel like I could talk to you for a thousand hours (laughs) because you have so much, you have such a wealth of information. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about this too. I mean, since we're kind of in this, Legally, sort of space sure. around writing and and being an author. You are the president of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, the nation's leading organization representing freelance writers. Can you can you tell us about um, this organization and what membership entails, and how you came to be to be president?
1: Sure. Well, I. The ASJA has a contracts committee. And that's a committee that answers contract questions for our members. And I was uh, chairman of that committee for six, seven years. I moved from there to the board of directors, from the board of directors to being vice president for two years. And now I'm halfway through my second year as president. Mm -hmm. So again, it's it's giving back to a profession that matters. And I I enjoy it. It, It's complicated at times and at times it's a full-time job, which makes writing difficult. But that's how I got involved in it. And the the organization, we have about 1,100 members right now. Everyone is a freelance writer of nonfiction primarily. We have Mm. a few people who, who do fiction as well, mostly magazine writers, a few book authors, but it's all nonfiction and it's all all freelance. So we have a very focused membership and we also have a very a, a, a very qualified membership. Uh, it isn't just you you write your check and you become a member. Mm. We we have a fairly high criteria for becoming a member. You you have to have a certain number of publications in national publications. And you 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 can do you can become a member with one or two books that have been published by a traditional publisher, mm-hmm. and the advantage of this is if you are an ASJA member, you've gotten over the first hurdle when you're talking to an editor. Mm. The editor knows that you've been vetted already, mm-hmm. so that they are much more likely to to want to hire you. We have an annual convention every year in New York, and the most popular part of this convention is something that we call Client Connections. And Client Connections are basically speed dating on steroids for, mm-hmm. for, for writers. At the 2019 convention, we had uh, over 60 editors and publishers who were there willing to talk to our members for 10-minute interviews. We had, we arranged almost 800 interviews in that afternoon and a lot of people get work that way. It's the most popular thing that we do. So that's the way the organization works. We also have a charitable arm and we have a writer's emergency assistance fund. If if a member or a non-member for that matter has some sort of uh, emergency or a crisis that means they are not, they can't pay their rent, you know, we give grants.
0: That's so it,
1: it, it's an interesting organization. We we also are involved right now in a lawsuit in California. There is a new law in California that restricts what a freelance writer or freelance photographer can do. Uh, we joined with the National Press Photographers Association and filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of these restrictions. And We'll see how that goes.
0: That is, that is incredible work that you're doing. And you, you know, you're, you're organizing the authors, you're helping the authors get work, you're t- caretaking your, mm-hmm. t- the writers and the authors, you're caretaking these freelance writers, and you're standing for their rights, which is fabulous. Thank you for, for sharing with us about that and your contribution yeah, to welcome. the organization. Um, these organizations are, are very important.
1: Yeah. And, I, and, and you know what American Horse Publications does for us. It, it's also a, a wonderful resource.
0: Absolutely. And and actually, the American Horse Publications is where you and I first met. And I, you know, the next question kind of touches on this mm-hmm. too. Um, and and for those people that may not be familiar with the American Horse Publications, do you want to just um, give a little, you know, log line about, you know, what sure. that organization does and, and how they help us?
1: Sure. AHP, unlike ASJA, which is strictly for writers, AHP is for writers. It's for photographers. It's for publishers. It's for magazine folks. It's for book publishers. It's for people who provide services to the horse industry. It's the only organization I know of that includes everybody involved in a particular niche. And that's what's so valuable about it. One of the things you can do is uh you get access to their listserv where you can run press releases. That's mm-hmm. one of the, the big deals about being a member. So there's a lot of communication there, but it isn't just among writers. It's everybody who is involved in equine media.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very, very great organ I mean I made so many beautiful relationships, like mm-hmm. not just connections and networking, but friends from this organization. And and um, you know, it just every year they, they, they offer a conference this year, it's their 50th anniversary in Kentucky. So, and that, that's a great opportunity to meet Mm -hmm. people and sit in on, um, sessions where you can learn to how to grow your writing career and your businesses. And that's what I'm getting to right now. So you are a popular public speaker on the business side of writing, copyright publishing contracts and other legal issues affecting writers. Um, I've seen your very informative sessions that you've done during the American Horse Publications conference. Uh, why did you decide to, to offer speaking services? And, uh, how do you, you know, how did you get involved with that? You know, is it-
1: I've known Chris Brune, who is the executive director for, for many years and. Again, it's another opportunity to give back to an industry. Mm-hmm. And plus, I like to talk, which is part of being an attorney. But <laughs> the the other thing is it gives me a reason to keep up with what's going on in the legal world. really actively practicing much anymore, although I'm actually AHP's legal counsel. Mm-hmm. But uh, it gives me a reason to keep up with trends and contracts. It gives me a reason to keep up with the, the law in California, that sort of thing, which is what I really enjoy. and And I enjoy public speaking.
0: Yeah, well, and you're very, you're very good at it and, and very confident. And, uh, you know, it, it's very clear here. Um, what are some of your favorite topics uh, when you do these or, or do or do the organizations come to you and say, I'd like you to talk on this? Or do you usually like, what are your favorite topics to to touch on?
1: It's a little of both. Uh, For AHP, if I come up with something that I think is interesting, I mention it to Chris or to somebody else who's on the board and say, would you like to do a session about this? You know, one of the things that I will suggest to them this year for the the conference in Lexington, is about these laws that are restricting what freelancers do. We have a law in, in California, but there's proposed legislation in New Jersey, and New York, maybe Illinois. Uh, it's probably coming up in Washington and Oregon. And there's federal legislation that does the same thing that will affect everybody. So mm. I'm looking at an update on that at least.
0: And that's so great because you know educating yourself about what's going on and how this can impact the work that you're doing is so important as an author and a journalist and a freelancer. You have to know what's going on because you know your your rights are being looked at and yeah. new bills are being proposed that can impact how you how you do your work.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's the nice thing about AHP. Uh, most everybody who is involved in the equine publishing media, industry, will will be there. You know, you're, you're reaching the audience that needs to hear this.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and thank you for the work that you keep doing with AHP, and I always look forward to sitting in on your sessions and, and well, seeing thanks. you there. So I'm curious, like, uh, when you started out on your author journey as an author of books, is there something that you wish you had known when you first started out that you would go back and tell your aspiring author self?
1: That That's a really difficult question. What I think I would tell people to do is to not plan on being successful. Ah. That doesn't mean you won't be successful, but if you start out with that as a goal, that really limits what you can do. Mm. Because you find yourself trying to duplicate what has been successful in the past. For example, when I was writing or working on the Dancer's Image book, I started that idea with the notion of a 60s era Seabiscuit. Mm. And I, I learned fairly quickly that publishers were not interested in a 60, 60s version of Seabiscuit. So I shifted back to what I knew, which was the legal side of the only disqualification of a Kentucky Derby winner for, for drug positive. And, and didn't worry particularly about how popular it would be or how well it would sell. And the other advantage of that is winning awards like the Tony Ryan Award or the American Horse Publications Award, is it, it's just sort of gravy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so I- yeah, it, it would, don't write to be successful. Don't try and do what has worked for other people. Well, It's really I- hard. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, and I would say, well, and, and to be realistic, right. You know, so for every book that we sell, we make a dollar or something. Yeah. Or so, you know, so it it takes, it takes an awful lot to be an, a successful author, but the, I think the reward is in, in the, the writing itself and following the muse and not putting unnecessary pressure on yourself to be a massive success, you know, and, and as you write more books and as you generate a backlist, it's it's all those revenue streams coming together that actually I think um, ends up generating the success. You're not going to walk yeah. out the door and hit like you know, be hit a book that you know. Well, I hope you do. I think that that would be amazing. You know, like an instant bestseller. But generally, like when these people hit the bestseller list, they have a backlist and they've been working yeah. at this for a very very long time and mm-hmm. building networks and and improving their writing skills and and growing as an author. And then I think that's where success comes in is like working at the craft. Would you agree? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you can't ever rest on your laurels. Mm-hmm. You, you 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 want to always have the thing you write today better than the thing you wrote yesterday, absolutely. whatever it is.
0: I I absolutely agree, and I think that's that's sort of natural too. It kind of mm-hmm. comes with the the more you write, the better you get, and you know the the quality of your work grows, and, and you know, and you learn, right? It's a never mm-hmm. never ending learning game. Um, you know, and I and I think this is this is an interesting question because you mentioned that you're not very active on social media <clears throat> and you know so how do you reach your readers if you're if you're not really you know playing that game like like what do you do to reach your readers what's what's the, been the best avenue for you
1: i'm i'm not sure that there is a best avenue i i've relied on on publicity primarily that is generated when a book comes out. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a rash of book signings, a rash of interviews, particularly if if the timing is right. Uh, one of the things that helped the dancers image book is part of my contract with the history press was if I get you the manuscript on this particular date, you guarantee that I'll have the book in my hands before the Kentucky Derby the next year. Mhm. And that was an an incredible marketing coup. I got phone calls from people all over the country radio stations who wanted interviews uh, magazine people who were writing about the derby so th- for me the the mechanics of marketing involve the timing of the marketing as much as anything else i i don't do enough to exploit those things to exploit the interviews to exploit the awards i posted on facebook a photograph of the Shergar book with its trophy from the equus uh, film festival. Mm-hmm. That was the extent of my Facebook postings. I, I have the plans to post something about the magazine article that won at the Equus Festival that I haven't gotten around to yet. Mm-hmm. So that that's, you know, for me, I post a f- something on Facebook every now and then. I, I post on Twitter two or three times a year, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a LinkedIn account. I, I don't even know how to use Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm missing out a lot, I suspect here, because every time I look at Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or anything, this seems like it's an incredible marketing tool.
0: It is. I just and, don't know how to do it. Yeah, and you know what's cool is you can listen to this podcast to get some tips on how to use some of those <laughs> systems to your best advantage, because that's what this is all about. It's yep. a learning space for people, mm-hmm. and 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 I think here's the other thing, though. I think that. We can always be doing more, right? Like I think that you have done a magnificent job when it comes to winning awards and being featured in the press and mm-hmm. working with the media and attending events and doing book signings and particularly for, non- for nonfiction, timing your releases to mm-hmm. events that 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 help elevate, uh, you know, tidal wave your your book into the right the right places. So I think that you're doing a lot. You know, there may be authors that are just Focused on social media and mm-hmm. missing out on all yep. the stuff that you're do that you're doing, right? So, so it's just, I think with marketing and publicity, it's like you pick and choose what works for you. Like if you're not a, you know, you can waste a whole lot of time on social <laughs> media. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you do what works for you, and and there are there are actually um, seminars out there and articles that are written mm-hmm. about how you can be a successful author without having to be t- dependent yeah. on social media. So it is a good opportunity. You know, but if it's not a right fit, there's other things that you can be doing. So, yep. so kudos for posting about your award uh, <laughs> with a trophy, though, on, on Facebook. That's good.
1: <laughs> but, but again, you're talking about timing. Uh, Sugar was stolen on the 8th of February, 1983. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do a long-form piece for thebloodhorse.com. Again, it was about 7,500 words. And part of the deal was that I would get it to them in time that it could go live online on February the 8th of three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. And it it got a lot of comments Mm -hmm. from the article. And the article was what I used as part of my book proposal to sell the Shergar book to the University Press of Kentucky. So, so the timing of the article was good because I got a lot of good comments and I also had a sample chapter to show the UK press along with, you know, a hundred people who said, hey, this is a really neat story. Mm -hmm. So, like you said earlier, it all works together. You know, nothing that, that we do stands on its own two feet. There's something behind it and there's something going on at the same time and there's something in the future.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's looking at like how you can utilize timing and a piece to make mm-hmm. a proposal, you know. So it's like it all it all works together, you know. So, so good, good. And uh, if you ever need or ever want to sit down and chat about social media, lasso me at the uh, <laughs> American Horse Publications. I'm happy to sit down and and share with you some of those. I'll
1: stuff. keep that in mind. Yeah. Thank
0: you. No, my pleasure. Is there a common myth about our? Uh, Profession or field that you want to debunk, and you've also you've already mentioned don't go into it hoping to be an instant success, and that we you know we don't make a whole lot of money. Is there anything else that you that you would want to demystify? The
1: the only thing that comes to mind is I think the perception of being a writer is that you are a solitary person, mm. that you're sitting in your office doing whatever it is that you do. Mm-hmm. And I, I am a solitary person by nature, but writing is a team project. Mm. The writing may not be, but the research certainly is. The production of the magazine article or the book or whatever certainly is. You've got a whole team of people who are doing that. The readers are part of the team too. So yeah, I, I, I write by myself, but I discuss what I'm writing on walks with the dogs, they're they're very good listeners <laughs> they and are. They, and and then we've got you know my my wife and I discuss things that that the writing is, is involving the editors discuss things you know there's there's editing process there's everything comes together again like you said earlier to make the final product and and the more people you involve and the better people you involve that that that's the key if you're going to consult with somebody make sure that you that they know what they're doing mm. but it all comes together to come up with a product that you like so it's a solitary activity that involves a whole lot of people if that makes any
0: sense that makes a lot of sense and i and i completely i completely agree with that assessment i always like to ask this one too you know what what for you has been the hardest part of being you know a writer author and then on the flip side like what's the very best part for you
1: and making time making time to do do whatever needs to be done Mm-hmm. and you know as I said I don't multitask so I need to work on something for a while and then shift years and work on something else so just time management is always a problem
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, managing research is a problem mm. the the Shergar book produced uh, three legal sized file boxes of stuff
0: oh wow that's that a lot to manage
1: <laughs> It's it's a lot to manage and I, I don't do things. I don't manage things electronically. I don't scan stuff and do digital stuff so I can mm-hmm. search for it. And the book came out in October of 2018. I still wake up maybe at least once a month, maybe twice thinking, you know, this should have gone in the book. Mm. So it's frustrating to deal with the with, with the, the, the management of, of time and the management of research, just getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. The The nicest thing is when somebody unexpectedly says, you know, I read your book and I really liked it. Or it made a difference in my understanding of something.
0: Oh, that is so, the best part. Yeah. That's what matters.
1: You know, that's mm-hmm. that's why I do this.
0: hmm We do. We write we write for our readers. Mm-hmm. You know, I was wondering all that research that you have, have you ever considered perhaps like donating it to like uh you know like the Kentucky Horse Parker Museum or something like that? I mean, is there a way to utilize that that research?
1: There there probably is. I've, one of the places where I've done an extraordinary amount of research for everything that I've written is the Keeneland Library, mm-hmm. which if you haven't been there, you need to go. It's an extraordinary place. The librarians are wonderful. And they they take donations of material. They archive things. They want to be the sort of the official historian of racing. So yeah, that's the thought. Of, I've got you know boxes and boxes of stuff in the garage.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that could be a very cool contribution yep. you know, to, mm-hmm. to all the research that you did do yep. and then give it a place to live you know, beyond the books. So yep. uh, I think that would be pretty neat. Um, you know, and here's another thing, you, you talk about this enormous amount of uh, research and information that you gather when you do write your books. Do you have any actual writing rituals or routines when you sit down? Like how do you, how do you find the time to get those words on the page?
1: well not very well is, is the the short answer to that but my writing if there is a ritual it is that i spend an awful lot of time thinking about stuff thinking about what i'm going to write mm-hmm. and that there's way more of that than there is actually you know sitting down at a keyboard and writing mm-hmm. i i know a lot of people are first draft writers, and they don't really care how good the first draft is, and you expect it to be terrible. I expect to get a lot of the terrible ideas and the terrible phrasing and the terrible writing out of the way before I actually start. Mm. And I I mentioned discussing this with the dogs. I I actually do that. I I talk to them about, hey, what do you think about this chapter? Where does it go? That sort of thing. I, I, I work out a lot of what I write in my mind before I start writing anything, and for me th- that that works.
0: And do you do you like um, do you like capture it in like little bullet points or or outlines? Like I know that if something pops, like I think about my writing a lot too, and, and if something comes to mind, I have to write it down or else it kind of goes away. Is, is it like that for you?
1: Uh, it, it is more and more as I've gotten older. I have trouble remembering things, so I have post-it notes stuck everywhere.
0: <laughs> I do too. I love post-it and, notes.
1: <laughs> and and the the downside of that is, I often can't read my writing. Oh my! <laughs> I I have terrible penmanship. So, but but yeah, it, that's a, that's always a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so post-its talking to the dogs and working out in your head before you sit down to write. And then, you know, how, like when you sit down to write, do you write until you just don't want to go anymore? Do you set a particular time or a word count or do you just, how how does that work for you?
1: Um, I don't have a word count that I try and meet every day. I don't have a particular amount of time. I write until I get bored with writing. Mm -hmm. And, And sometimes that is, an afternoon or a morning. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. I'm mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at realizing when I'm not being productive, and that's when I quit and do yeah. something else. Yeah. And I have I have enough other things going on now that it's always easy to find something else to do, to take my mind off the writing.
0: That's good. That's that's great advice. You have to give yourself a break every now and then, you know, it's like, don't, don't force it. If it doesn't want to come, like wait for Mm -hmm. the muse. I like to wait for the muse to pop up. And often the muse comes when I'm out cleaning stalls or like you said, walking the dogs or, Mm -hmm. you know, working out of the gym or something. And I have to go and scramble and write it down or talk into my phone or send myself an email or something. So I remember these, um, Is there anything that a reader might be surprised to learn about you? Like, can you um, karate chop a board in half or, uh, you know, do you like a particular type of strange food or is there anything surprising about you that a reader might not know?
1: That's a tough question. And, And yes, I can break a board. I have a black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu.
0: Oh wow! I must be like psychic. I can't believe I just said that. Like I didn't assume that you could do that. So. I...
1: So yes, I I can do that. I I do a lot of bicycling. I <laughs> I was a competitive power lifter for a while.
0: Wow! You're the so I... second power lifter on the on the show. Do you know that? That is no incredible. <laughs> really okay. Yeah. Um, Joanne Veer, Veer, Veer Coast, I interviewed. She's from Australia. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and she also was a power lifter. And she named her horse that she bred power lifter after her oh, neat. introduction neat. to the power lifter. yeah so what was the what was the most you could power lift at one time
1: uh my my best squat was 425 pounds my deadlift was a little over 500 and my bench press was terrible because my arms are so long
0: <laughs> that's incredible uh, yeah you milt is tall <laughs> just just yeah. for those listening in <laughs> Um, and then, you know, we already covered what you're curious about. You're, you're working on this this new project about mm-hmm. um, drugs in the horse racing yeah. business. So you let readers or listeners, I'm sorry, know where they can find you and your books?
1: The website is MiltonCToby.com, www.MiltonCToby.com. The books are all at Amazon.
0: Fantastic. And I will link to your website and uh the different places where people can find your books in the show notes Mill. i really appreciate your time today and uh thank you for being so friendly and fun and informative every time i meet you at the ahp conference and you know at the equus film festival it's been a joy knowing you as a fellow author and horse enthusiast so thank you for the gift of your time today this
1: is the sort of thing i like to do so
0: Yeah. And look at this. This is you getting the word out about your books without needing social media, because I'm going to take care of that part for you. So go for the podcast. It works out well. (laughs) Works
1: for me. I'm really impressed with your homework.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I have a bit of a journalist background myself. I I have a communications major. So that's clear. Well, thank you.
1: I I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to CarlyCadeCreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at CarlyCadeCreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my Spurs jingle.